If you'd open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 10 tonight, Revelation chapter 10, we'll be looking at a chapter that, unless you're a Bible exposition church, you wouldn't even touch. I doubt seriously anybody even preaches on this particular chapter, but because we go straight through it, we handle it, and there's real value to this particular chapter. So follow along as I read, I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven, clothed with a cloud, and the rainbow was upon his head, and his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book, which was open. He placed his right foot on the sea and his left on the land. And he cried out with a loud voice, as when a lion roars. And when he cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. When the seven peals of thunder had spoken, I was about to write. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken, and do not write them. Then the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land lifted up his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things in it and the earth and the things in it and the sea and the things in it, that there will be delay no longer. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished as he preached to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice which I heard from heaven, I heard again, speaking with me and saying, Go take the book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel, telling him to give me the little book. And he said to me, Take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it. And in my mouth it was sweet as honey. And when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter." And they said to me, you must prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and your people who are here tonight. As John said, it's a great crowd here tonight. And we would also pray for those that are watching on the live stream tonight. We pray that your spirit of God would minister to us. Lord, we need the spirit of God to minister to us in light of the scriptures. And we will thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. This past Wednesday, we had a major storm. It got dark and it got windy. And when I went down in our backyard, part of my fence was gone, which I thought was interesting. I thought, well, where did it go? And it had just blown down. So I'm good with hammers and nails. And so I was able to pick it up and put this thing back together. And I thought about that because that same wind that blew here on Wednesday went to the East Coast. And that gusty wind hit Friday in the Delaware coast and it caused the umbrellas that were out there on the beach of the Atlantic to go flying off into the sky. And someone said, when that happened, that's apocalyptic looking. That's what they said, that's apocalyptic looking. You see a few umbrellas take off in the wind and you say, that's like the apocalypse. It's not like the apocalypse found here in the book of Revelation. It doesn't even come close. That wind that went through last Wednesday and also on Friday out there in Delaware is not even close to what's revealed in the book of Revelation, the apocalypse. Now, at this point in Revelation, things are now well into the great tribulation, and we're nearing the three-and-a-half-year point. After the sixth trumpet judgment, which is the second woe judgment, it has been completed, and the seventh trumpet judgment, which is the third and final woe judgment, does not come immediately. What we have here before that final trumpet judgment, which includes the worst of all of them, 
we have two prelude events or two prelude moments to that seventh trumpet judgment hitting, which ultimately reveals the wrath of God, the final wrath of God, the finale of it. Now, the first prelude moment is the angelic heavenly announcement that there's going to be no further delay. We'll see that tonight. And the second prelude event is the measurement of the temple and its worshipers, and we'll see that, Lord willing, next Sunday night. Now, there are some who hold to the position that Revelation 10, 1 to 11, 14 is still part of the sixth seal trumpet, but based on the statement of Revelation eleven fourteen that says the second woe is past, behold, the third woe is coming quickly. And based on what is revealed in Revelation chapter 9, that the rest of mankind were not killed by these plagues until the next ones begin, we make the conclusion that the sixth trumpet judgment ended at the end of chapter 9. The specific focus now in the tribulation is going to turn toward Israel. And the final trumpet judgment will specifically be aimed at Israel and at Jerusalem, and it will feature specific events that will lead to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, the actual start of the seventh trumpet judgment will be Revelation chapter 11 and verse 15. And when that judgment starts, everything's going toward Israel. Now, if we do some math that we can pinpoint in the book of Revelation and we compare it to Daniel, we can pretty much time rate everything that's happened so far. We know that at 1260-day point which is the middle of the tribulation. It's the middle of Daniel's 70 week. There's going to be a major turning toward Israel. Flip over to Revelation chapter 12, and you'll notice verse 6, and those numbers are given there. This woman fled to the wilderness. The woman, as we will show you, is a reference to Israel, and she had a place prepared for her by God, and she was nourished there 1,260 days. That is three and a half years. So we specifically have mentioned here of 1,260 days, that puts us right at the middle of the tribulation period and everything turns against Israel, which is exactly what Daniel predicted. In the middle of the seven years, there's going to be a major turning against Israel. So now we can backtrack from that point. And if we backtrack the numbers as God reveals them, we could conclude that the trumpet judgment, number six that we looked at last time, lasted for 391 days. So we can subtract 391 days because those 391 days occurred before the 1260 day point that occurs in Revelation chapter 12. And we know that trumpet judgment number five lasted for 150 days. So that backs us up five months before that. And then trumpet judgments five and six are a total of 541 days before the 1260 day midpoint. So if we subtract all of that, 541 days from the first 1260 days, we total 719 days. So we can conclude that the first six sealed judgments occurred in 719 days or about 24 months or about two years. Then you come to trumpet judgment number five and six. They take up a total of 541 days, which turns out to be 18 months, which is one and a half years. So if you add the one and a half years that we know mathematically from the book of Revelation to the two years that were demanded in the first six sealed judgments, we come to three and a half years. So at this point in the great tribulation, we're reaching that three and a half year point, and there are still three and a half years left to go, and those three and a half years that are left to go will be the subject of the seventh trumpet judgment. Now this is all a prelude to that. And in Revelation chapter 10, we have two key persons involved in two distinct actions. First, we get this action of the angel. 
in verses 1 and 2, I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven. Now, as we've been seeing all throughout the book of Revelation, angels play a major role. And during the tribulation, demonic angels and God's holy angels are going to play a vital role. William Newell made an interesting observation when he said, the more one studies the book of Revelation, the more we become impressed with the authority and the dignity of angels. Now, we don't see the angels, but they're obviously present. As we said, Jesus Christ himself singled out some special angel for every church. We know there are territorial angels that are given assignments. We don't see them, but they're there. They're here tonight, I'm sure. We know believers have an angel. We can pretty much establish an angelology that a believer has at least one angel with them and also perhaps others as well. So angels, although unseen by people in the world, are very significant to carrying out the program of God, and they're going to be significant here. Now, most people view angels as just nice, positive, protective, unseen beings. Many think of them as being just friendly spirit beings that we don't get to see. And it's true that angels can be that and are that. In fact, they are revealed to be that for believers. But they also may be ferocious and may be used by God to carry out negative judgments against those that aren't right with God. And that's what we have going on here. Now, there are 11 observations we can make about this angel. First of all, it's another strong angel. We read in verse 1, I saw another strong angel. The pronoun another, alas, means this is another of the same kind of strong angel that we've already seen in these other tribulation judgments. We saw a strong angel used in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 2. We were introduced to one. There's another one that shows up in Revelation 18 and verse 21. It's another of the strong kind of angel. Now, the adjective strong that's used here before the noun angel is iskuron, which is a particular Greek adjective that indicates this is a powerful, strong, mighty angel that doesn't lose. This is a strong, powerful angel, as G. Abbott Smith says, that is going to prevail in accomplishing whatever that angel is out to accomplish. So we're not talking here about some typical harp-playing, laid-back angel. This is a very high-ranked angel in the scheme of the things of God. This particular angel is given tremendous power at this point in the tribulation. His job is to execute the final wrath of God. Now, there are some people who have actually suggested that this angel is Jesus Christ himself. We completely reject that because the Lord Jesus Christ never appears as an angel in the book of Revelation. When you see the Lord Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation, he appears as the glorious lamb and as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Some have speculated that perhaps this is Gabriel or Michael, the archangel, because Daniel closely does connect those two angels with prophetic things, and that is absolutely true. But since the angel is not specifically named, we're not going to take the liberty to try and name it or say it's one of them. What we do conclude, based on what the grammar is saying here, is that there is a high-ranking angel, very high-ranking angel, who is specifically authorized by Jesus Christ to act at this point of time. Now, what that tells us, though, about angels is they have different ranks and different strengths. This angel obviously is very high-ranked, and this angel is an angel that has tremendous strength and is not going to lose. Whatever this angel sets out to do, he is going to accomplish it. Now, the second observation is this angel's coming down out of heaven. We read in verse 1, another strong angel coming down out of heaven. This high-ranking angel is coming down out of the heaven, is how it reads in the original. So we're not talking here about just coming down 
from the atmospheric heaven that you and I are living in or the stellar heaven where the planets are. This angel's coming right out of the throne of God, which would tell us this angel's not coming out of the abyss like those demons came out of, and this angel is not bound here on the earth. This angel is being sent right out of heaven and coming straight from the throne of God. So the judgments that are about to hit, which are going to be major judgments against Israel, are going to be directly coming right out of heaven. And that includes, as you will see, the terror of the Antichrist and all the evil demonic forces that will be against the nation Israel. Now, the third observation is this angel is clothed with a cloud. That's what we read there in verse 1. Heavenly beings that descend, often descend with a cloud, and oftentimes they do that when it's connected to judgment. And the clouds that you can see are clouds that aren't small. You typically don't see real small clouds, you see big clouds, which would indicate that this angel probably does have a very large heavenly appearance. And also in scripture, a heavenly cloud represents the glory of God, specifically as it relates to Israel. So I think this angel is going to be a majestic angel, a visible display of an angel that will reflect the glory of God and will have a specific connection to Israel and This angel will play a key role in glorifying God through judgment. This is a very strong angel that will be used at that time. Now, the fourth observation is this angel has a rainbow on his head. Verse 1 says, and a rainbow was upon his head. Now, it's important to point out to you that the angel has a masculine pronoun. That's what verse 2 says, and it is a masculine pronoun in Greek. He, he had in his hand a little book, and he had a rainbow upon his head. So those are masculine pronouns that are used in regard to this particular angel. It's a he, not a her. And just as angels Michael and Gabriel are masculine in gender, so this pronoun indicates that this strong angel, whomever he is, is a high-ranking masculine type of angel. Now, biblically speaking, the rainbow represents God's faithfulness to keep his promise to never again destroy the world by a flood. But we know he is going to destroy the world and burn it up. That's what the rainbow represents. So this rainbow is a sign that God always will keep his word when it comes to prophetic things. And certainly it would indicate he's not going to destroy the world by flood, but as they're about to see, he's going to hit this world hard with other things. God has promised he will destroy the world by fire. That will not happen till after the millennium, but he's going to pour out vicious wrath on this earth as we will see in the next judgment. This angel with a rainbow is a visible reminder that God is faithful to his word. He's faithful to his word even when it contains ferocious judgments. Now the fifth observation is the angel had a face like the sun. That's what we read in verse 1. His face was like the sun. More than likely he'll have a very heavenly glow to him that will be spectacular. Now, all angels that reflect God's glory have a glow to them. I mean, there's no question about that. But this is apparently going to be very unique. And Jesus Christ has already been seen in Revelation by John with a similar face to that. And we know that when Jesus Christ was transfigured, his face shone like the sun. So what that said to Israel is that this person who was on earth is your king from heaven. And so when people see this angel, and I think they are going to see this angel at this point in the tribulation period, Israel is about to experience some very negative judgments, and this angel, by his very look, is going to signal to the world and signal to Israel, this is coming right out of heaven to the glory of God. 
And what they're going to realize is this nation needs to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ to survive any of this. That's the only chance she has. Now, the sixth observation is this angel has feet like pillars of fire. We read in verse 1, and his feet were like pillars of fire. That pillar of fire imagery clearly connects to Israel being led by God with a pillar of fire. And this angel will be used by God in judgments pertaining to Israel. He will have the authority to stamp things out, stamp people out, pour out judgment. And that's just what those feet illustrate. And the seventh observation is he has this little book in his hand. Verse 2 says, and he had in his hand a little book which was open. Now, I want to point out some things from this little book business. First of all, it doesn't say the little book. It's a different book. There's no article before the noun book here. And there's a lot of controversy that surrounds this book. Frankly, we don't know exactly what is in this book or in this scroll. It's different from that seven-sealed scroll book that we saw earlier in the book in chapter 5 and also in chapter 6 that the Lord Jesus Christ breaks open the seals and starts the judgment. I suspect that this little book has to do with the prophetic things that are about to happen to national Israel. It's like a playbook. I suspect this is kind of like a rule book of things that's about to hit Israel and it's coming in complete conformity to the word of God. And by virtue of the fact that this angel has this little book in his hand would indicate, as Dr. Wolverd said, that this angel has the full authority to carry out the final playbook as it relates to Israel. Now the fact that the scroll is open suggests that the angel is completely authorized to do everything that the word of God predicts is going to be done. So everything involved in the finale of the final three and a half years of the tribulation connected to Israel is going to be done. And this angel obviously is going to carefully follow the word of God, and that apparently this part of the word of God, and that's what we would suspect it is, contains the final things as it relates to Israel. It's coming straight out of heaven, straight out of the word of God, and all the things that are going to happen, including the finale of the nations, is also going to be there. Now, this really becomes the title deed to the world. It really becomes the thing that leads to Jesus Christ coming back and taking over the world. So this little book that's in his hand is a critical little book. Now, the eighth observation is the angel standing with one foot on the sea, one foot on the land. We read in verse 2, he placed his right foot on the sea and his left on the land. Now, the fact that the angel is standing with one foot on the sea, one foot on the land, is stressed three times in this chapter, verse 2, verse 5, verse 8, and there are three things that means. First of all, the angel is about to pour out the finale of the wrath of God, and literally he's going to do it on the sea, and literally he's going to do it on the land. He will, at this finale, be the angel in charge of the authority of what's going to hit the whole world, land and sea. He's going to be the one who's overseeing the wrath that's going to be poured out. Secondly, the angel is about to take charge of the remainder of the world, which includes the sea and the land. And thirdly, the angel is about to pour out the final judgments of God that will be focused on the people of the land, who are Israel, and the people of the sea, who are the Gentile world. The sea people are often referred to as Gentiles, and the land people, of course, the people promised the land are referred to as Israel. 
So by this angel putting his feet on the sea and on the land, he's basically saying, I have this little book here that has the finale of everything that's about to hit the Gentile world and everything that's about to hit Israel. Now the ninth observation is the angel cries out with a loud voice and heaven responds. In verse 3, he cried out with a loud voice as when a lion roars. And when he had cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. When the seven peals of thunder had spoken, I was about to write, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken. Do not write them. The angel is going to cry out with a loud thunderous voice like a roar of a lion. And I'm assuming this is going to be heard on the earth. I believe this. I mean, everybody at this point in the tribulation knows this is all coming out of heaven. This is all coming from God. So these sounds and these noises, they're going to hear that, just like we hear thunder. And the repetition, peals of thunder. I mean, we hear that, and the language here is describing this is something people are going to hear. And when you hear thunder, you think of immediately, boy, there's a storm coming. I mean, you hear that thunder crashing, and you think, man, there's a major storm on the way, and I think that's exactly what this sound is signaling to the world. There is a major, powerful, terrible storm of God that is going to come upon the world. Now, what becomes clear from this is that this angel cried out with a loud voice, and when he cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voice, and when the seven peals of thunder had spoken, I was about to write... And I heard the voice saying, seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken and do not write them. Obviously, when these voices spoke, John recognized what they were saying. He was about to write it down. See, you get off with these religious people that say, you know, we speak in the language of angels. You ever run into people like that? No matter what we do, we're speaking the angels' language. Well, the angels spoke in understandable language. I mean, whenever we can find in the Bible that angels spoke, they spoke in language that people could understand. And obviously, John is listening to all this. These are angels involved in this. And John understands every single word that they're saying. It's not a bunch of babbling nonsense. And we learn from verse 4 that John heard what those seven thunderous voices said. In fact, he's about to write it down. And then a voice from heaven, which may be the voice of God, came and said, don't write it down. So what we learn from verse 4 is seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken and don't write down. What you heard them say, don't write it down. Now we don't know for sure what John heard. And as a result of that, we're just going to leave it at that. We don't know what it is. There are, as S. Lewis Johnson said, a lot of ministers that will try to tell you what he heard. We don't know. I mean, we can guess. We could guess maybe he heard the date of the rapture here. Maybe he heard the name of the Antichrist here. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what he heard. There's no point really trying to speculate because we don't know. But there are a couple of points worth noting here. And that is God reveals certain things to some people he doesn't reveal to other people. John knew what he heard here. He was prepared to write down what he heard here. But he doesn't write it down. Obviously, we could say he went to his grave knowing something the rest of us don't know. That's all right. That's all right. There are people who have a deeper grasp of the things of God than other people have. And John is obviously one of them who has a deeper grasp of what this text is saying than we have. And secondly, God reveals specific details concerning his prophetic program, but we don't know everything. 
No one knows everything that God knows. We can know what his word reveals and we can go to work on that. And believe you me, we have plenty of work to do on that. To go through every one of these books of the Bible and understand these clauses and these paragraphs and these sentences and these verbs and all of that. That's plenty of work to do right there with the stuff he has revealed. So we don't need to spend a lot of time on stuff he hasn't revealed. God's given us plenty to work on. We don't need to know what we don't know, what God hasn't chosen to reveal to us. And just let God be God in that. So John was hearing what they're talking about here, and maybe it was the actual date that the Lord was coming back. Who knows? He could say, okay, this is the date he's coming back in his second coming, and this will be all wrapped up on this particular day, this day of the month, and this particular hour he's coming back. I don't know what he heard, but he said, don't write that down. Now, with the 10th observation, the angel lifts his hand and announces the end, verses 5 and 6. Then the angel, whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land, lifted up his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and things in it, and the earth and the things in it, and the sea and the things in it, that there will be delay no longer. Now, here's another great proof that this angel is not Jesus Christ. Because this angel lifts up his hand and swears an oath to God in heaven. Jesus Christ doesn't do that. He is God. So this is an angel. This is an angel. It's a solemn moment. And the angel lifts his right hand toward heaven. He promises by the authority of God who created all things. This is a very solemn moment, a solemn oath that's sworn by this angel that I am going to fully carry out the responsibility of the final judgment of God. This is the God who created the heaven and all things in it. This is the God who created the earth and all things in it. And this is the God who created the sea and all things in it. In other words, this angel swears, I'm going to put an end to all this. The time's up. It's time for the finale of the wrath of God. And he's making a solemn oath and solemn promise to heaven, to God, that he's going to take care of it. I take the position this may be very visible and very audible. We may remember that when Belshazzar was holding a feast, suddenly this man's hand appeared and wrote on a wall, and people saw it. I mean, it scared them when they saw it. So it would not surprise me if during the tribulation the things we're looking at here are things that actually people can look into the sky and actually see. And perhaps the people on this earth are going to look into the sky and see this majestic angel lift his right hand and make this solemn vow and solemn promise to God that he is going to bring this to a finale in the next three and a half years. And one would logically ask, why has there been a delay? And Peter gives an answer to that because God's grace is still saving people, which is the reason for the delay right now. Why haven't we been raptured tonight? Well, there's a theological answer to that. God's not willing that one of his sheep perish. He's in the business right now of calling people into his family. When that last person is called into the family of God, we're gone. We'll be gone in a moment, a twinkling of an eye. Now, the 11th observation is the angel reminds all that this program is in the prophetic scriptures. Notice verse 7. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound... Then the mystery of God is finished as he preached to his servants, the prophets. Now, I want to point out a couple of things here from verse 7. First of all, the word preach is euangelion. 
from which we get our word evangelize, it's a word that actually means good news. But I want you to notice where this angel from heaven says that this good news was proclaimed through the prophets. Through the prophets. In other words, God laid out this prophetic program pertaining to his son. God laid out his prophetic program pertaining to Israel in those prophets. And if we're going to understand the whole counsel of God, if we're going to understand exactly what the truth is pertaining to God, we have to study the whole written word. You can't just take a favorite New Testament book or a few verses. We have to go through all those prophetic scriptures. We have to go through the Old Testament to pour through that to see this all come together. And when we go through that Old Testament, what we discover is God has made promises pertaining to Israel that he intends to fulfill. And we also have seen many, many passages that say before he does fulfill it, there's going to be a time of judgment, the likes of which Israel's never seen before. And what this angel is basically saying here is, I'm the one here to finish this. I'm the one here to bring all of those things that were spoken in the prophetic scriptures to fruition. It is my responsibility to oversee this. And we must be people who are very serious about grasping the whole counsel of God, every book in the scriptures. God did not just give these 66 books for the fun of it. He expects us to crawl through every one of them and understand every bit of it. Now, that's the first person that's discussed in Revelation 10, this angel. Now, the second person is John, the action of John. Verse 8 says, Then the voice which I heard from heaven, I heard again speaking with me and saying, Go take the book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel telling him to give me the little book. And he said to me, Take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. Now, as John was watching all of this, and he was about to write down what he'd heard, they said, don't write that. Now, he's given three commands. First of all, take that open book from the hand of that angel. He said in verse 8, go take the book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the land. Now, this proves right there that this angel is not Jesus Christ because no one is going to be worthy to walk up to Jesus Christ with that seven seal book and take it out of his hand because Christ was the only one worthy to go and get that book. So that tells you right there, this is an angel that John is going to, and he's commanded to go and take this book from the hand of the angel. And what we clearly see here is that during the great tribulation, there is going to be a tremendous focus and emphasis on the fulfillment of the written word of God. The great tribulation, as we've said before, is very systematic. We went through the time frame of it in the exposition earlier tonight. In other words, this thing is boiled down to days and hours, and it's fulfilled precisely. Now, his second command is, eat the book that you get from the angel. Verse 9, so I went to the book. He said, take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it. And in my mouth it was sweet as honey. And when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. Now this, I think, is a very critical point for several reasons. First of all, let's remember who John is. He's an apostle, but he's a Jew. And he is, at this point... Given this little book that we're assuming contains the final judgments that are about to be poured out against Israel, so when he eats it, 
it probably first tastes sweet to him because the first half of the tribulation wasn't really aimed at Israel, and a lot of negative things didn't happen to Israel in the first half of the tribulation. But the second half of the tribulation is going to be very bitter for that nation. We know from Zechariah's prophecy that two-thirds of the nation Israel will be exterminated by the Antichrist and his demonic forces. During that time, only one-third will survive. So you have that application. You have another application that no matter what is happening in the world, what is so important is that people feed on the word of God. G. Campbell Morgan said we must feed our soul on the word of God no matter what's going on in the world. It's critical that the people of God have an appetite for the word of God and God's ministers have a responsibility to digest the book like a book of Revelation and feed it to the people. That is their responsibility. The people of God should be able to go to church and be fed God's word at a very healthy level of feeding. And by virtue of the fact that John is ordered to take God's word and eat it, we see there must be a personal feeding, a personal ingestion of the word of God at all times, even in ferocious times. Now, God's word will always taste good to God's people, even if it contains bitter things. And it does contain bitter things. But the word of God is that which will revive a soul. It has that kind of dynamic power to it. It's true. Some of the things you see in the word of God are hard. Some of the things are warnings. Some of the things are threats. But there's a sweetness to it for the people of God. Now, the chronology of this is that as John ate the word of God, it was sweet, but it became bitter. And again, I go back to where we're at in the tribulation. Before things are going to be sweet for Israel in the world, it's going to be very, very bitter. And she's going to be hit with some bitter things. And especially that's the way it's going to work for the nation Israel. Judgment is a bitter theme, but it also can be sweet. Because if the threat of judgment prompts one to get into a right relationship with the Lord, there's a sweetness to the theme of judgment. But if one is not in a relationship with the Lord, any time they read a passage of judgment that comes in the word of God, it is a bitter thing to read. And at this point in the great tribulation, things are about to become very bitter for Israel. John was not only an apostle, but being Jewish, he would realize what's about to happen. He saw what was about to happen. It would be very, very bitter. But he also came to realize that This bitter time would ultimately become a sweet time because there will come a future time when Israel is going to get her land. She will be an esteemed nation. She will have a kingdom and she'll have all the blessings of God. So there's a bitter sweetness to this moment when John realizes we're about to move into the time frame where it all turns to Israel. And the third command is you proclaim this prophecy to the nations. He says in verse 11, and they said to me, you must prophesy again concerning many peoples, nations, and tongues, and kings. Biblical prophecy is for every single nation in the world. The tribulation is going to hit every single nation in the world. Don't be duped into thinking it's going to bypass the USA. It isn't. All the nations of the world are going to experience the tribulation. And this verse is critical because the mandate that's given to John is you need to communicate the truth of the prophetic plan of God to the entire Gentile world. It's your responsibility, John. You write it down, and you have the responsibility to communicate and warn people of all the horrible things that are going to hit in the Great Tribulation. 
You have a responsibility to tell the church that if they want to escape the great tribulation, they need to believe in Jesus Christ because the church is going to be raptured. The church is not going to be in the tribulation. But you also need to warn people that if they do not believe in Jesus Christ, they're going to go into this tribulation and they're going to experience the wrath of God. And it's interesting that biblical prophecy pertaining to Israel, and as you're about to see, and you'll see it, Lord willing, next Sunday night, Biblical prophecy pertaining to Israel is supposed to be communicated to the peoples and the nations and people who speak different languages and kings. I don't see too many people out on the front lines communicating the importance of Israel to political leaders. In fact, political leaders downplay Israel. Most political leaders of the world basically demean Israel. But it is the responsibility of those who know the truth to tell these political leaders and these kings and these people of different languages, look, you need to understand this. You haven't replaced Israel. God has a major program for Israel, and he's going to come back and finish that program and give her that kingdom. You need to honor her. This isn't just truth about some evangelistic message to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, which certainly is a message that's needed to be heralded. But this is a message that you take to the world that reminds them of the importance of Israel. And we have churches today that are telling people Israel's not important, the church is. It's a horrible misuse of the word of God. When John is told here, you go out there and you tell these nations and you tell these peoples and you tell these people of different languages and kings this prophetic program. You know, I read an interesting statement not long ago. People do not really reject the Bible because it contradicts itself. They reject the Bible because it contradicts them. People basically reject the truth, not because it contradicts itself, because the Bible is very thorough in laying out this plan that God has for the nation Israel, starting in the Old Testament, tracking it right on through the New Testament. It's very thorough. So it's not a question of the Bible contradicting itself. It's the fact that the Bible contradicts people. They don't want to hear what the Word of God has to say. And here's what the Word of God has to say. You believe in Jesus Christ or you face the wrath of God. I can't state it any clearer than that. You accept the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. You place your faith in him or you will face the wrath of God. And before you get to the point where you'll actually be cast into the eternal lake of fire, if you live that long, you're going to go into this tribulation. So our admonition would be, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, is that you believe on him and escape the wrath of God. That's the message John took to the world. Let's pray. If you've never believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, just take a moment and settle that tonight, right where you are. Just invite Jesus Christ to come in and take over your life. Father, we thank you for the scriptures. We thank you for the Apostle John. We thank you for the revelation. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that, as we saw earlier tonight, this thing is all time-regulated. Our lives are time-regulated. The church age is time-regulated. We pray, Lord, that even though we don't know the moment, the hour, the minute, you know it. And we pray that very, very soon that final member will come into the family and you'll take us out of here. In Jesus' name, amen.